my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay. Is this thing on? I got a light. Okay, we're ready to go. Let's see here. Bubble, bullseye. Ah, here we go. Bullshit. Exclamation. Noun. Complete nonsense. nonsense. Crazy stuff. No accuracy and just... Nonsense information that makes you angry or annoyed. Verb. To try to persuade someone or make him or her admire you by saying things that are not true. This one 
someone's maybe has like an angle. But it's not the full truth. Like crap, like nothing makes sense. Like they're trying my intelligence. I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. And they're not really telling you the truth. We've been an international oil company for 112 years. We want to transform ourselves into an integrated energy company. It's like, what the fuck are you saying? A lot of what's on the media is bullshit. I think a lot of the politicians are bullshitters. They tell you what you want to know and don't do anything about it. So many people seem to think that bullshit only comes from certain sources. You know, advertising, politicians, salesmen. Not true. Bullshit is rampant. Is bullshitting simply human nature? Everybody's a bullshit artist at one point or another. Is there even a difference between bullshit and straight-up lies? The thing that I think we all need to do right now is work to bring people closer together. That we're going to change Facebook's whole mission as a company in order to focus on this. Parents are full of shit. Teachers are full of shit. Clergymen are full of shit. Law enforcement people are full of shit. Why is bullshit everywhere. Welcome to Calling Bullshit, the podcast about purpose washing, the gap between what an organization says they stand for and what they actually do and what they would need to change to practice what they preach. I'm your host, Ty Montague, and I've spent over a decade helping organizations define what they stand for, their purpose, and then help them to use that purpose to drive transformation throughout their business. Unfortunately, at a lot of institutions today, there's still a pretty wide gap between word and deed. That gap has a name, bullshit. But, and this is important, bullshit is serious, but it's also a treatable condition. So when our bullshit detector lights up, we're going to explore everything the organization should do to fix it. Hey folks, welcome to Season 2 of Calling BS. In Season 1, we looked at a number of bullshitting organizations, we developed the BS Index, and we worked with our guests to imagine a bunch of different ways to actually fight BS. Here on the show, we define bullshit as the gap between word and deed. It's in our intro, and it's what the BS scale is all about. But not everybody defines BS in exactly the same way. And so we thought, let's kick off season two by dedicating an entire episode to the concept of BS itself. What is it? Where does it come from? And at what point does it become dangerous? How can we all keep our BS detectors in fighting shape? To begin with, let's examine the origins of the phrase. The first surprise? It doesn't have anything to do with cow poop. The bull in bullshit may actually reference the last name of Obadiah Bull, an Irish lawyer living in London in the late 1400s who was famous for spouting nonsense. It may also have originated back in the days when the Pope wrote decrees on parchment and authenticated them with a metal seal called a bulla, leading to the shorthand phrase, papal bull. And shit likely comes from shite, the staff carried by ancient Scottish warlocks. Bullshit detected. I'm kidding. Actually, shit likely comes from the old English word shitta for dung, so no mystery there. 
But where there is a bit of mystery is when bullshit actually became slang. One thing we know for sure is that T.S. Eliot used the two words side by side in his poem, The Triumph of Bullshit, written in the early 1900s. More recently, the concept was picked up by moral philosopher Harry G. Frankfurt. In his book, On Bullshit, which was published in 2005, Frankfurt writes that one of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much bullshit. To see how Frankfurt's theory holds up today, we sent our producers Haley Pascalides and Parker Silzer out to ask New Yorkers what they think. Would you agree or disagree with the following statement? One of the most common features of our culture is that there is so much bullshit. Oh, 100%. Yes. 100%. No, I'm an optimist. I have always been struck by how much people really care about the truth of the matter. I think a lot of the time people are pretty bad at seeing past the bullshit, but they really care to. The symbolism of bullshit is on Wall Street. Don't they have the bull there? I rest my case. They, they, they are transparent, transparent in their bullshit. Um, do you agree with the statement, one of the most common features in our culture is that there's so much bullshit? Nowadays, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. The government's definitely hiding a lot of things from us that we, that we don't know about. Politics, everyone, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's just everywhere. It's so common. Like, everyone, every company is somewhat, like, bullshit something. The idea of bullshit and bullshitting can seem harmless or even funny. But as a listener of this show, you know that BS is often used to deceive and confuse in ways that can cause real harm. So why do people BS? And why is it so hard to stop it once it starts? To figure this out, I decided to call up a real expert. Hello, I'm John Petricelli, a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University. My specific research has really focused on persuasion metacognitions or thinking about thoughts that we have, and of course, bullshitting and bullshit detection. John runs the Bullshit Studies Lab. Yeah, that's an actual thing, where he designs experiments to test how we're affected by the social world. Just basic judgment and decision-making. Basically, he tries to understand what influences people, looking at external information and social environments as well as our internal biases. But the reason I first got in touch, he wrote this book. The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. When I first saw that title, I thought, well, why would he write a book when he could just do a podcast? But after I read it, I had to call him up. I, I got to say, I loved your book, not surprisingly, maybe given the show, but I noticed you draw a distinction between bullshitting and lying, which seems like an important distinction. Can you just unpack that difference? Yeah, absolutely. Bullshitting is often confused for lying, but it's very distinct from lying in, in some very important ways. So when someone lies to us, the liar is actually concerned about the truth, right? And their objective is to get us to believe something that they don't believe is true themselves. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, the bullshitter doesn't really care at all about the truth. They're not paying attention to it at all. In fact, they, they have no idea what the truth is. It's weird to me that anybody wouldn't care about something as important as the truth. But John says there are two major motives for bullshitting. 
And one of the motives is to be consistent with our actions and, and what we say. And we're also motivated to feel justified by the claims that we make and our behaviors. And once you publicly state something, you get a lot of social pressure added to those motivations. As John explained this, my mind immediately jumped to when, after Trump was sworn in on the National Mall, Sean Spicer told the world, This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. It most assuredly was not, but the administration wouldn't cave, and then senior counselor Kellyanne Conway doubled down bigly on CNN the following day. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts. They definitely didn't care about the real numbers. You sent the press secretary out there to utter a falsehood on the smallest, pettiest thing. I don't think anybody and can I prove the numbers. Look, I actually don't think that it. maybe this is me as a pollster, Chuck, and you know data well. I don't think you can prove those numbers one way or the other. There's no way to really quantify crowds. We all know that. You can laugh. That would at me be textbook want, bullshitting. So whereas the liar doesn't uh, believe what it is that they say is true, the bullshitter really has no idea whether or not it's true. It's very easy today to say something that's not very well thought out, that's not very well informed, and then to feel as though you have to support it, right? Because now you're going to sound inconsistent and you're going to sound stupid for, <laughs> for communicating something that either we know isn't true or isn't supported by the evidence. And it's very seductive once you publicize it. So it's, it's much better to sort of think, collect evidence, <laughs> and, and, and see whether or not, well, is, is there evidence for or against what, what my opinion is right. on the issue? But, and so I think those are sort of two major motives, especially once people start communicating their opinions and their beliefs. But the other key distinction here is that society treats liars differently than it treats bullshitters. When people lie to us, there's often a lot of great negative consequences. You know, we're very unhappy with liars. You when know, we catch them. Yes, exactly. But, but when we know, kind of know someone's bullshitting us, we often assume that it's harmless. We pass it off as sort of a mild social offense. But this is where we can't be more wrong. Virtually all of our problems, whether they be personal, interpersonal, professional, or societal, they appear to stem from mindless bullshit reasoning and communications. So what I wanted to do was to sort of put something um, together that puts the problem with bullshitting front and center and to call attention to it and to expose how dangerous it can actually be. Right. And I, I totally agree. We underestimate the seriousness of the impact of bullshit. And you list a number of ways that BS can be damaging, in some cases life-threatening. And you use a scale in the book, which I love. John uses the fly index. One fly is harmless. Two flies is bad. And three flies? Dangerous. So harmless might sound something like, you know, I could throw a football over a mountain in 1982, you know, and you get, you get the <laughs> eye rolling. And in fact, some 
examples, I think, of bullshit actually have some benefits. We tell children in the summer at the pool, you know, Ty, they put a compound in that swimming pool water to reveal the presence of urine almost immediately. <laughs> you know, and as every kid knows, that really isn't true. Not but true. <laughs> but I think that's relatively harmless and it's if anything, it's potentially useful to the extent that it keeps a few kids from peeing in the pool. But then I contrast harmless with the two fly example of bad bullshit. My favorite example of this is did you see her face? Who would vote for a face like that? I think that kind of bullshit, it dehumanizes, objectifies women. It suggests that they can't be good leaders right. unless they're attractive. Right. I mean, it doesn't make much sense. But the three-fly example might sound something like this. You know, Ty, I can text while driving without any problems. Right. And, and you know what? Everyone does it. And so right. I don't see the problem. <laughs> okay. Right. My, my response to that is no, no, no. You know, right. the, the, not only are these things not all true, but they are able and likely to cause harm and injury to oneself and others to the extent that, that you actually believe it is true. And so to say something like that just completely neglects truth, established knowledge, and genuine evidence. That would be the more dangerous form of bullshit. Why are we so vulnerable to BS? Why don't we all have better BS detectors? There are two primary reasons for why people are not generally good at discerning bullshit from the good stuff. First, most people believe that they're somehow immune to bullshit. And actually, research suggests that the most confident people are often the most likely to be duped by bullshit. Right. Um, this is why uh, one of the reasons I really love this new show on Netflix, Bullshit, the game show with, with Howie Mandel. Let's play bullshit. So that the main contestant is supposed to either answer questions correctly or to convince one of the three challengers that their incorrect answer is actually correct. And if they can either answer correctly or convince one of the three challengers that their incorrect answer is correct, then they can move on to the next stage and ultimately win a million dollars. But what's interesting is when they bring on each of the three challengers, each one of them talks smack about how good they are at detecting BS, right? <laughs> then the show proceeds and you can see how miserable most people are at actually detecting it. A lot of us have overconfident but underperforming BS detectors. And John says there are a few reasons for this. I mean, the research in, in cognitive psychology by Janet Metcalf has shown that people do not study subjects they feel they've already mastered. They stop, you know, they go on to something else. And, and then the second reason is that even before we suspect we might be exposed to bullshit, we fail to ask the right questions. We fail to ask, well, what exactly is the claim? And then another question that's, that's hardly ever asked is, how does this person know that this claim is true? So if you ask someone, how, how do you know what you're saying is true, Ty? You know, most people will, will tend to be surprised because that's not a common question to ask. And then they'll take a few steps backwards and they'll st already start to kind of clean up 
their first answer. <laughs> you know, let me give you some of the qualifiers. And, and then when you, you narrow back down, it's really good to ask, how might the claim be wrong? People tend to answer the how do you know it's true only with confirming evidence. So you have to directly ask people and nudge them to consider the ways in which the claim might be wrong. Right. And just to draw a line under this for the audience, you make the distinction between why questions and how questions in the book. And your thesis is that why questions are a little easier to slip out of than how questions. How forces somebody to really bring evidence into the conversation. Yeah. Usually when you ask why questions, you kind of get a value-laden sort of a heady, abstract response. But when you focus people on how, it tends to elicit a more concrete response where they maybe even for the very first time take a few steps back and say, okay, well, what, what are the actual reasons to have this opinion or this belief? And then you can make a better decision as to whether or not you're really buying what it is that they're selling. Right. In the book, you, you coined a term, which I really liked, which is bullability. I assume it's a comparison to gullibility. Yeah, this is, this is a word that I made up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so a gullible person is likely to believe something, you know, despite the signs of dishonesty. Somebody who is a, you know, especially bullable, we would say that, well, they tend to be a relatively lazy thinker who doesn't even care about the signs of dishonesty. And one of my favorite examples of this has to do with a, a, a clip that 60 Minutes aired in 2007 of Bernie Madoff kind of sitting around and recruiting new investors in his hedge fund. And one of the things he said was, I'm very close with the regulators, so I'm not trying to say that they can't, you know, that what they do is bad. He was talking about the SEC. You know, in today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to, to violate rules. When this is something that the public really doesn't understand. But you, it's impossible for you to go under, for a violation to go undetected. Certainly not for a, a considerable period of time. It's impossible for a violation to go undetected, you know, certainly not for a considerable period of time, right? Well, that clearly <laughs> wasn't true. I mean, Madoff proved that for totally. 18 years. Madoff truly is a cautionary tale. Everyone was investing in Madoff, so no one really thought to look at the facts. And this is where things get sticky. Even people with the most discerning minds want to belong. And when John brought up a study done in the 1940s, I realized that this desire can be even stronger than our sense of right and wrong. The experiment was conducted by the psychologist Solomon Ash. He brought in one participant for a number of trials. This one real participant would be joined by a handful of assistants or confederates posing as other participants. And they would set it up such that the actual participant always thought they were late to the experiment. And there was one seat open and... Each trial in the experiment just consisted of a very obvious answer to a question. They were shown a line of a certain length and then presented with three other lines labeled A, B, or C. And one of these lines was exactly the same length as the original line. 
the other two mismatches were completely wrong, very obvious. And what would happen is the first four or five Confederates working with the experimenter would start to respond incorrectly, intentionally, to these trials. And the actual participant would look dumbfounded and be like, what in the world? It's, What's it's wrong really with obvious. these people, they'd be, like right? they'd be so checking obvious. their glasses and kind of squinting. Yeah. And, and they knew that the response that was verbally given by the other Confederates was wrong. But what Ash found was that people tend to feel pressured to go along with the group. In other words, even when the real participant clearly saw the wrong answer being given by everyone else, they still went along with it. They did not go along with the group when they had a chance to respond privately. But when they had to respond publicly, they tended to go along, they tended to conform to the group. So what is that about? Well, especially when situations are ambiguous, you can even magnify this difference. When it's not clear what the, the, the answer is, people conform to the group even more so. We tend to think that the group knows something that we don't. But what's wilder to me is that even when the other people in the group are complete strangers to us, our fear of group rejection can cause us to override indisputable facts. All of the participants were complete strangers, but they were peers. And, you know, if you get peers together, even peers that you don't know personally, there's that general sense of pressure to go along with the group because there's a fear of being rejected, a fear of being avoided. It's much more impactful than most people right. would believe. So what does this say about the proliferation of BS in our society? Even when we see it, it's hard to call it out. The ash experiment is like the snowflake on the tip of the iceberg of harm that can be done when people go along with BS that they privately disagree with. I'm guessing that this is part of why whistleblowers at high BS companies are so few and far between. How can we expect to fight the rising tide of real BS when it's so hard for us to call BS on the length of an arbitrary line? How can we trust anything or anyone if this is the default setting on our internal BS detector? Answers to these questions and more right after the break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. 
We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So now we're pushing into just another area of interest for us. There have been a lot of many assertions in the media in particular that we're actually experiencing a crisis of trust in the world, especially among young people. First of all, have you have you seen any of those assertions and do you agree? And if so, do you feel like BS is one of the culprits? I I do think our late millennials and and Gen Zs, they, I mean, they grew up hearing about concerns with the environment, even like sort of our our late generation Xers. You know, know, we grew up, you know, concerned about greenhouse gases and aerosol spray cans and things like that. And, And I think it's developed a more socially conscious group than, than ever before. And I think there's a little bit of evidence that tend to have a better memory for bullshit and lies. I mean, this sort of the underpinnings, I think, of cancel culture, um, I think there are some benefits to it. I mean, we, what we would usually call that in right. social psychology is accountability. <laughs> right. You know, when you have to right. justify, you know, right. when you have to justify your beliefs and your opinions, people tend to uh, feel feel that social pressure, and they don't bullshit as much. You know, if if someone like Nike president and CEO John Donahoe or Phil Knight, you know, again, if they say we're going to address the carbon footprint problem by doing this, we're going to address sweatshop problems by doing that. If they don't do it, you know, there's a major base of the consumers that are not going to be happy, and they'll cancel them. It's basic accountability, but I think it's one of the major things that is going to combat the unwanted effects of bullshit. 
Um, yeah, we completely agree. I think that's a good segue point to some some questions that I have that directly relate to the work that we're trying to do on this podcast because you know, our show was was born out of reflections on the attack on the U.S. Capitol and the role that bullshit, as we define it, played in it, specifically fomented by by our friends at Facebook. You know, they claim that their purpose as a company is to empower all of us to build community and bring the world closer together. And meanwhile, what they're really doing is feeding us deceptive and polarizing content that clearly, in some cases, whips us into a violent frenzy. And so... It's that gap between what they say they stand for and the actions that they're actually taking that we define as BS on this show. So what do you think of our definition? Because in some ways it seems very much the same. I sense a kinship with your work, but is it in some ways different? I think what what you are actually hitting on is, is a special case of bullshit. In most cases, I think you're hitting on uh, what we call pseudo-profound bullshit. Pseudo-profound bullshit, or flowery, catchy language that can be hard to decipher, is everywhere in the marketing landscape. And when a company's purpose is treated as marketing, it can fall into this category as well. It's clever language because it can it can actually mean all sorts of things. Right. Hard to pin down. Exactly. It doesn't have to mean what you think it means, or, or maybe it could. Here's where it's really clever, though, is if you ask for clarification, and now I can gauge what you think it should mean, you know, right. and I could say, yeah, you know, you got it. That's what it means. <laughs> you know, I, re- I recall <laughs> this, this, this classic conversation between the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins and Deepak Chopra. And Dawkins challenged Chopra to explain the mystification of quantum mechanics in aging reversal sort of theory. Where did the quantum theory come into that? Oh, it's just a metaphor, just like uh, an electron or a photon is an indivisible unit of information and energy. A thought is an indivisible unit of consciousness. Oh, so it's, an, it's a metaphor for a, for a unit. It has nothing to do with quantum theory as in physics. No, I think quantum theory has a lot of uh, things to say about observer effect. There are a school of physicists who believe that quantum leaps, for example, are examples of discontinuity. And uh, creativity in consciousness is also an example of discontinuity. And that healing may be a biological phenomenon that uh, relies on biological creativity. So it sounds like a sort of poetic use of the word discontinuity. It's, it's actually confusion, isn't it, to bring in um, quantum theory other than as a metaphor. But it sounds as though you're both doing it as a metaphor and a little tinge of, of something like what physicists are talking about as well. Dawkins kind of accepted Chopra's retreat. I mean, Chopra just moved the goalposts. So yeah. this is this is the problem with this type of language, and you see it especially in business in the corporate world. Yeah. It's just it's just everywhere. Yeah, um, and that's what we're trying to wade into and hopefully clarify for some folks, because we have our own our own scale, which is slightly different. Rather than measuring BS in flies, our scale is a hundred point scale: zero being the best, zero gap between word and deed, zero BS, and one hundred being the worst, total bullshit. So, we rate all the companies that we feature on the show. And as I read your book, I realized that on our scale, we might be combining BSing and lying. 
Um, and lying might live on the upper end of all our scale. So what's your take on that? Is knowingly BSing in that way the same as lying? Or is there a distinction to be made there? Yeah, well, I, I think, well, there's nothing wrong with your scale. It's perfect for expressing a, a social perceiver's guesstimate of lying, I think. Because once it's intentional and you know something isn't true, then I think you're moving into to lying and further away from bullshitting. But yeah, I think I think the scale of sort of like, well, what you know, based on what they say and what they actually do, I think it's a very useful scale that you've got. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you have a daughter. What what advice do you give her or would you give any young people today who face this, you know, what feels like a rising tide of BS in the world? How should they think about fighting this fight? Yes, well, you mentioned my daughter. I mean, she's one of my best bullshit detectors. I'm not permitted to bullshit at all. I, I remember when she was four, for whatever reason, I told her, you know, when I played high school football, we won all of our games. And at age four, she's told me, Dad, no, come on now. You did not win all of your games, you know. <laughs> but what I would advise her and anyone to do now is just to sort of take a step back. When you hear something, you read something, you see something that may or may not be true. Think about the consequences that it has if you actually believe it. What consequence would it have for your behavior? How might it change your decisions? How might it change your beliefs and your opinions? And then to simply start asking questions. You can kind of flip some of those questions onto the self and say, well, who is telling me this? You know, how do they know it? How could they possibly know it? And what are they trying to sell me? What agenda do they have? These are like just basic critical thinking skills. But, but I would say just stick with the claim. You know, don't attack the person, attack the claim. And then suggest, well, okay, I used to think of it that way too, sort of misery loves company kind of approach. You know, <laughs> right. like, well, yeah, I was, I, yeah, I was I could tricked see how into believing that before. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it's just an easier pill to swallow if it's just kind of an error in reasoning than it was that, oh, they're just misinformed and they're guilty of bullshitting. But another thing I think is good to admit is that we, we all contribute our own amount of bullshit. <laughs> and to not double down on the bullshit, but just kind of admit it when we're guilty of it. Finally, be ready, you know, be ready to model a better behavior, <laughs> you know, be willing to provide and offer evidence-based reasoning to counter and combat bullshit. You know, the hope and the dream is, is to really reduce bullshit and its unwanted effects, but it's going to have to be a collective effort. Yeah, we completely agree. You know, there is a whole generation of young people who are taking a very activist stance on these things. They're not putting up with the bullshit anymore. And that's one of the audiences that we most want to provide information for on this podcast. I, I love the concept of your podcast. I think it shines a lot of sunlight on problems. And mm. I believe that what we need to advocate is treating bullshit like lies. If we treat right. bullshit, even when you say, okay, well, it's bullshit, don't assume that it doesn't have a negative effect. Don't assume right. that it's harmless. John, this was a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. All right, Ty, thanks for having me. So, this is the part of the show when I would usually rate an organization on the BS scale. But instead of giving a score today, I want to talk a little bit more about how the BS scale actually works. We define bullshit as the gap between word and deed. 
and we measure that gap by looking at the evidence, talking with experts who can help us understand the actions that companies are taking to live, or not, their purpose. Once we've asked as many questions as we can, we construct the final score using these three guideposts. One, action. Does an organization's purpose exist to solve a real problem? Are they taking concrete action to make it real in the world? Or is it just flowery, pseudo-profound business speak? Are they ignoring glaring gaps between word and deed or taking steps to remediate them? Are they considering all of their stakeholders? Looking at actions helps us to gauge intention. If we find that an organization is willing to correct course or engage with criticism, we can see their real intentions shining through. Two, transparency. We always look to see how much information a company discloses. Do they publish their goals as well as track progress toward them? Are they as quick to call out their own shortcomings as they are to claim their victories? When an organization is truly purpose-led, they hold themselves accountable by showing their work. And three, harm. A gap between word and deed that threatens democracy or the future of the entire planet will always be high BS. In this way, we're super aligned with John and his fly index. More harm always means a higher BS score. And if you're a future or current purpose-led business leader or a conscious consumer, here are three takeaways from John that'll keep your BS detector in great shape. Bullshit detected. One, ask how and not why. Why questions are easier to answer vaguely. But how questions cut right through the BS. How is this company making its purpose real? How is it seeing to its stakeholder needs? Two, don't attack the bullshitter, attack the claim. Challenging BS shouldn't feel personal. If your attack feels personal, it's more likely to be ignored. BS is a treatable condition, but only if the BSer wants to treat it. So bring them in on it, engage them as an ally. And three, don't get swept up in groupthink. We are social creatures, and John showed us that there is a powerful urge within all of us to just get along and go along. Keep your personal BS detector sharp and don't assume that if it's going off, there's something wrong with you. A lot of folks are going along with all the BS in their lives just because they don't want to go against the group or ruffle any feathers. Come on, get out there and ruffle some feathers. And if you want in on the fight against BS, subscribe to the Calling Bullshit podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to people speak into your ears. Thanks to our production team, Hannah Beal, Amanda Ginsberg, Andy Kim, D.S. Moss, Haley Pascalides, Parker Silzer, Basil Soper, and Mijan Zulu. Calling Bullshit was created by Co-Collective, and it's hosted by me, Ty Montague. Thanks for listening. I'm 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.